Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I don't think we've talked very much on the show about the Shakers. They're more formally called the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearance, and there were as many as 6,000 Shakers in the middle of the 19th century, but their numbers started declining after that point. Today, there is only one active Shaker community remaining. It's in Maine, and over the last few years, it has had between two and three members. Today's subject was a Shaker, but was also something of an outlier among the Shakers, Shakers were known for their rural, utopian communities, but Mother Rebecca Cox Jackson established a community in the city of Philadelphia. This was the only known urban Shaker community. 19th century Shaker teachings also included racial equality, and Shaker communities were open to believers regardless of their race. But at the same time, most of these communities were very predominantly white. Like, if you see photographs or illustrations, often there are one or two people of color at most, Jackson, on the other hand, was a Black woman who focused a lot of her religious work on the Black community, and most believers in the community that she established were Black women. Uh, So that's who we're going to talk about today. And just a heads up, there is some violence in this episode, including a little bit of discussion of intimate partner violence. Mother Rebecca Cox Jackson's autobiography begins with a conversion experience that she had in July of 1830. She was 35 years old at the time. 
She makes scattered references to her life before that, but they're mostly in the context of dreams or visions connected to those earlier moments. Her journals also end abruptly years before her death, and her autobiography is almost exclusively focused on her spiritual and religious life. So there are gaps in what we know about her adult life, and we don't know much about her life before the age of 35 at all. We do know that she was born on February 15, 1795 in Horntown, Pennsylvania, And at the time, this was a small village outside of Philadelphia, but as the city got bigger, Horntown was pretty much absorbed into it. Rebecca's mother was a free Black woman named Jane, and we don't really know much about her father, except that his last name was Cox. He probably died not long after Rebecca was born. She went to live with her grandmother until she was a toddler, possibly because her mother just couldn't afford to support the whole family by herself. Uh, At that point, Jane had at least two other children, Joseph and John. Jane remarried at least once to a man whose last name was Wilson or Wisson. He died in 1801 when Rebecca was about six. Rebecca had her first vision just before this, one in which she foresaw her stepfather's death. During her lifetime, she had visions that predicted the deaths of other family members as well, including her young nephew, John. After that vision, he converted and was baptized on his deathbed. Rebecca's grandmother died when she was seven. And then when Rebecca was about 10, she became responsible for looking after two younger half-brothers. In her adult writing, Rebecca described herself as the only one of her mother's children who, quote, had not learning. That's probably because she was the only one who couldn't go to school because she had all these other duties to her siblings. Rebecca's mother died when Rebecca was 13, and she went to live with her 31-year-old brother, Joseph Cox. He worked at a tanning yard and was also a preacher and an elder at Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. He was probably a widower. Rebecca's writings never mention a wife. Rebecca started working as a seamstress while also keeping her brother's house and looking after his six children. And at some point, she got married to a man named Samuel S. Jackson. And her writing suggests the two of them, after they were married, lived together in her brother's house. As we said just a moment ago, Joseph Cox was an elder at Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME, now known as Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. This is one of the oldest African Methodist Episcopal congregations in the United States and one of the first Black churches of any denomination in the country. The church was at the heart of Philadelphia's free Black community, with ties to the abolitionist movement and to the Underground Railroad. The African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded in the face of racism and discrimination among other Methodist congregations, But the Methodist Church had been at least somewhat more welcoming toward Black members than a lot of other denominations were, and they had actively ministered to Black communities. This is something we talked a little bit about not long ago in our episodes on William Apis. So by the time Rebecca Cox Jackson got to adulthood, there was already a tradition of Black Methodist communities, including Black clergy and lay ministers and Black-led prayer groups, While the clergy and other church leadership were typically men, a lot of prayer groups were formed among women and focused specifically on women's spirituality. 
Although Rebecca Cox Jackson eventually became a shaker, her early religious experiences were largely within more mainstream churches like the African Methodist Episcopal Church. As we said earlier, Jackson's autobiography starts with a religious experience that she had in 1830 when she was 35. She saw that as the true beginning of her life. She had always been so afraid of thunderstorms that she would hide from them in her bed. During a particularly bad storm, she started to feel like the storm itself was announcing the end of her life. She prayed, either for death or for redemption, and suddenly everything shifted. Instead of being a messenger of death, the lightning became, quote, the messenger of joy, peace, and consolation. Her fear of thunderstorms immediately fell away, and she saw them instead as messages from God. About six months after this experience, Jackson made a public confession and was baptized by Mary Peterson, who was the wife of a Presbyterian minister from Philadelphia. Peterson was part of a women's prayer circle or covenant circle that Jackson was involved with, and Jackson eventually became its co-leader. Jackson didn't offer much specific detail about her relationship with her husband, but she does mention that he liked to gamble and that he used obscene language. But after Rebecca's conversion, Samuel seems to have been pretty supportive of her religious pursuits, at least at first. Rebecca started a smaller prayer group with her husband and a couple of other people so they could talk about their experiences in a more private setting. Some of the prayer groups that formed within Methodist communities during this time were focused on sanctification. So when a person converted to Methodism, they felt that their sins had been forgiven through divine love and grace. But then sanctification went beyond that to fully free a person from sin. Sometimes people of color who wrote about their own religious experiences in the 19th century also framed sanctification as freeing them from any racism or oppression that they had internalized while living in a racist and oppressive society. So those factors obviously still existed, but they didn't feel as emotionally and spiritually burdened or bound by them. Rebecca Cox Jackson had a sanctification experience in 1831. And that experience, in her words, quote, destroyed the lust of my flesh and made me hate it. She came to believe that her body was God's and God's alone and that sex was sinful even in the context of a marriage. She talked to her husband about this newfound conviction, and her description of what happened during this conversation sounds almost otherworldly. He had gone into the cellar to get some firewood, and he'd left the door open. And there was also a pot of coffee boiling on the stove in the kitchen. Jackson kept placing her hands on the stove and then walking toward the open cellar door with her eyes closed. But the stove never burned her, and she never fell down the stairs into the cellar. She opened her eyes after doing this several times, and Samuel was looking at her as though he was afraid of her. Rebecca explained to Samuel that her newfound conviction wasn't about her personal desires or about her feelings about him. It was that her body no longer belonged to her. It belonged entirely to God. Jackson describes her husband as understanding this as a divine experience and attending prayer meetings with her for several weeks with the hope of having some kind of revelation of his own. But eventually, Samuel stopped being supportive. 
Years later, when the two of them separated, Jackson said that she had become afraid of him, including being afraid for her life, and that she had only survived the last years of her marriage because her gift of foresight had made it possible to avoid the worst of his violence. We'll talk about how Jackson's life changed after this sanctification experience after we take a quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. 
AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Rebecca Cox Jackson started having more religious visions after her sanctification, but at first, she didn't always act on them. In one case, there was a woman she knew who was sick, and Jackson felt that she should pray for this woman. But then she thought, quote, her husband is a Presbyterian and don't know you, and if he comes in and sees an old Black woman in his chamber praying for his wife, he will push you into the street. So she didn't. This woman later died, and her family said that she had thought Jackson was coming to pray for her and did not understand why she had not. In another incident, Jackson had a premonition that another woman was going to die in about two weeks and that Jackson needed to tell her so that she could put her affairs in order. But Jackson was again afraid. She thought that she might be branded as a false prophet. This woman also died, and Jackson felt deeply remorseful. After all of this, Jackson committed herself to trusting her visions and to always obeying God's commands to her. And in her mind, this was a binding covenant. At around the time that all of this was happening, Jackson also learned to read. Her brother, Joseph Cox, had agreed to teach her. They had agreed that he would give her an hour or so of lessons after supper or before he went to bed. But in her words, quote, "...his time was taken up as well as mine." This became a big source of frustration, but a bigger frustration was when Jackson realized that Cox was not just taking dictation when he wrote out letters for her, he was editing her words as she spoke. When she realized this, she told him, quote, I don't want thee to word my letter. I only want thee to write it. Jackson was really hurt by her brother's actions, but then in her words, quote, these words were spoken in my heart. Be faithful, and the time shall come when you can write. Later, when she was sewing, another message arrived in her mind. Quote, Who taught the first man on earth to read? Answer, God. Well, God is unchangeable, and if he taught the first man to read, he can you. After this, she opened a Bible and realized that she could read it. She told her husband that she could read, and he said she had probably just memorized those verses, so she turned to some verses that she did not know. She read them as well. After this, she read from the Bible every day and eventually realized that she could read whatever she wanted. She also learned to write, and afterwards, she regularly kept a journal, something that she kept up for about three decades. She also felt called to write about religion and spirituality as it was told to her through things like visions and dreams and divine revelation, saying, quote, I am only a pen in his hand. Just as her sanctification experience had shifted her relationship with her husband, her experience with literacy really shifted her relationship with her brother. She had always really looked up to Joseph almost as a father figure. She had even idolized him. So his failure to teach her to read was a huge disappointment. But then beyond that, she began to think that it had been wrong of her to idolize her brother in this way in the first place. And she realized that she could not simultaneously defer to her brother as a father figure and the head of their household and also adhere to her conviction that she be unconditionally obedient to God. As Jackson became more able to study the Bible on her own, she also became more active in her covenant meetings. 
This caused controversy as men other than her own husband started to attend them. Although Jackson had been baptized, she wasn't formally a member of any specific church, and she had no plans to join a church at that point since God had not commanded her to do so. But her brother's role in the AME church also meant that her activities reflected on him, and people started putting pressure on him to try to make her stop. She was accused of dividing up church congregations and of, quote, eleading the men. Ministers and leaders from various denominations started investigating what she was doing. Although many of them denounced her, some actually wound up on her side. For example, Bishop Morris Brown of the African Methodist Episcopal Church attended one of her meetings. His intent was that he was going to make her stop preaching. But then afterward, he said, quote, if ever the Holy Ghost was in any place, it was in that meeting. Let her alone now. Jackson also found that ascetic practices like fasting and seclusion heightened her spiritual gifts. These gifts included visions and dreams that were sometimes violent and disturbing. She saw herself and various members of her family coming to harm. She didn't do any kind of introspection about whether these images had some kind of root cause. She saw them as direct messages from God. But some of the people who have written about her have speculated that some of this imagery was a response to the place and time where she was living. In the early 19th century, there was a violent racist backlash against the free Black community and the abolition movement in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania more broadly. We have talked about this in a couple of previous episodes of the show, including our episode on Lucretia Mott and our interview with historian Callie Nicole Gross, in which we talked about ongoing racism and racist violence in Philadelphia after the Civil War. This violence included things like a white mob burning down the abolitionist meeting venue Pennsylvania Hall four days after it opened. Bethel AME Church was damaged in this same act of arson. Yeah, I, uh, we're going to have that episode on Lucretia Mott as a Saturday classic coming up for folks who want more of that context. Uh, so, in addition to that, racist violence was also escalating in other parts of the northeastern U.S. in the decades before the Civil War. That means that when Jackson started traveling as an itinerant minister, she was taking a big risk, especially since Samuel did not go with her. She traveled all over the northeastern United States, preaching and healing. She found both black and white converts in response to her preaching. But there were also a lot of people who denounced her or disrupted her meetings or threatened her life over what she was doing. In addition to the fact that she was a black woman preaching to racially integrated congregations, some of what she was preaching was deeply controversial, especially the idea of celibacy even within the context of marriage. She was also doing all this while experiencing some kind of chronic or recurrent illness. She wrote about three different times that she thought she was going to die, but lived because she was needed to do God's work. Some of her descriptions from her journals suggest that she may have been experiencing seizures. There's a gap in what we know about Jackson's life that stretches from about 1836 to 1840. But at some point during those years, she became part of a group in Albany, New York, that became known as the Little Band. This was a perfectionist group that was predominantly white. 
So perfectionism isn't one specific theology, but it's rooted in the idea of it being possible to spiritually perfect oneself to become fully free from sin. So it has some common elements to that sanctification that we talked about earlier. During these years, Jackson also met Rebecca Perrott, sometimes spelled with two T's, P-E-R-O-T-T. Perrott was born in 1816 or 1818 and was about 18 when she and Jackson first met in 1836. Perrott became Jackson's closest companion, and the two women were together for the rest of Jackson's life, so for more than 35 years. We mentioned Jackson's sometimes frightening and violent visions and dreams earlier. Her journals just detail so many of them, but not all of her visions were violent or frightening. Some of the ones that involve Rebecca Parada are actually the opposite. Here's one that she wrote about from 1851. Quote, I dreamt that Rebecca and me lived together. The door opened west, and there was a river that came from the west, and it ran eastward, passing our house on the south side, and one part came front on the west, a beautiful white river. I stood in the west door looking westward at the beautiful river. I saw Rebecca Perrot coming in the river, her face to the east, and she a-plunging in the water every few steps, head foremost, a-bathing herself." She only had on her undergarment. She was pure and clean, even as the water in which she was bathing. She came facing me out of the water. I wondered she was not afraid. Sometimes she would be hid for a moment, then she would rise again. She looked like an angel. Oh, how bright. Jean McMahon-Humez, who edited a collection of Jackson's writings, describes this relationship as one that combined elements of motherhood, marriage, and sisterhood. Other people's writings from the time sometimes describe Jackson and Perrot as mother and daughter or as a spiritual mother and daughter. Jackson also kept Perrot's journals within the pages of her own. Perrot could not read, so she would dictate her journal entries to Jackson, who wrote them down with her own journal entries. We'll talk about how Jackson and Perrot joined the Shakers after a quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. At the end of 1842, several members of the little band, including its founder, Alan Pierce, visited a community of Shakers. So like we said at the top of the show, the Shakers are more formally known as the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. They started out in the 1740s near Manchester, England, as an offshoot of the Quakers, also called the Religious Society of Friends. The name Shakers actually started out as a nickname, kind of insulting nickname that outsiders gave them because their mode of worship included a state of ecstatic dancing that could involve shaking or trembling. Shaker leader Mother Anne Lee immigrated to New York with a group of followers in 1774, seeking freedom from religious persecution. The United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing then established a number of communities in the U.S. These communities were focused on simplicity, communal living, and celibacy, including strictly dividing the community by gender for everything from living spaces to work duties. When people joined the Shakers, they settled their debts with the outside world and then turned any money or property they had over to the collective. Shaker communities became known for simple, practical clothing and for simple but also finely made handicrafts like furniture and brooms. 
because the people living in these communities were celibate, they could only grow through recruiting new adult members or through adopting, fostering, or indenturing children. That was something that led to accusations that Shakers were really kidnappers. Leaving the UK did not ultimately protect the Shakers from religious persecution. There was a whole anti-Shaker movement in the United States in the 19th century. Shaker beliefs were also connected to millenarianism or the belief that before the Last Judgment, Christ would establish a kingdom of God on earth, which would continue for a thousand years. Mother Anne Lee died in 1784, and some of her followers came to believe that she had been the second manifestation of the divine spirit to take a human form on earth, the first one being Jesus Christ. This aligned with Shaker beliefs that God had both male and female manifestations. In about the 1830s, a new belief arose within the Shakers, which was described as Mother Anne's work. This was rooted in the idea that Mother Anne was continuing her religious work in the spirit world, and that was leading spirits to manifest themselves to Shakers who were still living. This had some parallels to the spiritualist movement that was developing at about the same time, including mediums who acted as conduits for spirits and seance-like rituals. The number of Shaker believers peaked in the 1840s at about 6,000, living primarily among 18 rural communities in the northeastern U.S. and what was at the time thought of as the western frontier. The largest of these communities was in Mount Lebanon, New York, and it was right around this time that Alan Pierce and the little band visited a Shaker community. Pierce felt that it was God's will for the little band to become Shakers as well. Over time, 16 members of the group did, including some children. But not all of the little band converted, and some of those who did ultimately wound up leaving. The Shaker way of life could be really difficult. It involved a lot of strict rules and hard work, and existing families were separated into new living and working groups after they became part of the community. Jackson was one of the people from the little band who didn't join the Shakers right away, although she did see a lot of overlap between her own beliefs and Shaker teachings. This included her belief in celibacy and the idea that a person could experience divine revelations directly from God. Shakers described these revelations, prophecies, and spiritual manifestations as gifts, and the gifts that Shakers experienced were much like the religious and spiritual experiences that Jackson had in her own life. Even though she didn't become a believer right away, Jackson did find a new level of zeal and urgency in her own religious work. She had been experiencing religious visions for years at this point, but after learning more about the Shaker belief in the dualism of God, more of the spiritual teachers who she saw in these visions were women. In 1847, Rebecca Cox Jackson and Rebecca Perrot formally joined the Shaker community at Watervliet, New York, just north of Albany. A few members of the little band who hadn't yet converted became believers at the same time. This was a little more than four years after Jackson's first visit to a Shaker community. She and Perrot continued to live together, and they were often known as either the two Rebeccas or the Black Rebeccas. Rebecca Cox Jackson's relationship with her husband Samuel had really been deteriorating for years. She had also come to the conclusion that it was just not possible to maintain both her religious life and her marriage, even if that marriage was celibate. 
When she joined the Shakers, she and her husband finally separated, and then he died at some point after that, although the exact date of his death is not clear. Samuel continued to appear in her dreams and visions, though, including an 1855 vision in which, quote, his countenance was sorrowful, such a one I think I never saw upon a mortal. Its expression seemed to implore mercy. She describes him as seeing and feeling that he had to put all his things in order and right all his wrongs, and that when he saw that she was ready to forgive him, quote, the tears of contrition flowed in abundance. In spite of all that commonality and overlap between Jackson's belief that she had come to on her own and Shaker teachings, she really had some trouble adjusting to the Shaker's way of life. Shaker communities tended to be rural and self-contained, but Jackson's own spiritual calling involved working among people to spread God's word. Believers were also beholden to the rules of their communities and to directions that were handed down by Shaker elders and eldresses, but Jackson was used to following what she saw as directions given directly to her from God. At the same time, she got a lot of praise for her work. For example, Shaker Rufus Bishop described her speaking at a public meeting in 1850 this way, quote, I do not know as I ever heard the spectators lectured in a more suitable and feeling manner in my life. Every sentence and word seemed to come with weight and power and breathed forth love and goodwill to the children of men. In 1850, the two Rebeccas got permission to make a brief visit back to Philadelphia. It seems like the leaders at Watervliet hoped this would ease some of the tension and disagreements that had been going on. It didn't, though. And after briefly returning to Watervliet, the two Rebeccas went back to Philadelphia again in 1851. Jackson essentially established an unsanctioned Shaker community. She really focused her work on Philadelphia's Black community, And although this is what she felt like she was called to do, she felt really guilty about this rift with Shaker leadership. In Philadelphia, Jackson and Peratt attended seances and spiritualist meetings. Jackson's journals describe sensing many spirits in the room at some of the seances they attended. Both of them had visions and prophetic dreams, which Jackson recorded in her journals. In one of Peratt's dreams, she, Rebecca Jackson, and a Shaker woman were all in England, where the Queen of England crowned Rebecca Jackson King of Africa and Rebecca Peratt Queen. Then she saw Africa, quote, with all her treasures of gold, together with all her inhabitants, and this was all given unto our charge. In 1857, the two Rebeccas went back to Watervliet, and they stayed there for about a year. Jackson was very ill during this time, describing pain and swelling in her eyes along with blindness. She eventually recovered, and in October of 1858, she was given leave to establish a small Shaker community in Philadelphia. Sometimes this is described as an out family. Permission to do this came from Eldress Paulina Bates, someone Jackson respected but had previously argued with over their differences in approach. Bates said she was speaking on behalf of Mother Anne Lee. According to Jackson's journals, Bates said, quote, Now, Rebecca, you may go to your people and do all the good you can. Now you can go in the gift of God and in the gift of the ministry and elders. Now you are endowed with power and authority. Now the Lord hath sent you. You have waited for the Lord, and you go under a blessing. 
The two Rebeccas left for Philadelphia again on October 8th, 1858, after being given some money to cover travel expenses and some books on Shaker theology that Jackson had asked for. Jackson was holding, quote, solemn meetings in Philadelphia by the following April. Paulina Bates visited this little community several times a year until her death in 1884, and she eventually became somebody that Jackson loved and respected deeply as a religious companion and a mentor. The Shaker community that Jackson established in Philadelphia was primarily made up of Black women, and all of its leaders were Black. Some accounts describe them as living in a house on Erie Street, but several other addresses connected to this same community are shown in Shaker records as well. It seems as though the whole community followed Shaker teachings and practices, but only Jackson and Peratt received divine gifts and practiced healing. Although the journals of other Shakers mention visiting this Shaker community in Philadelphia or they note that it existed, we don't have a lot of specific documentation of what day-to-day life was like there or Jackson's activities while she was leading this community. As we said earlier, her journals stop abruptly seven years before her death, and that happened on May 24th of 1871, probably from a stroke. Rebecca Cox Jackson was then buried near some of her blood relatives in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. After Rebecca Cox Jackson died, Rebecca Perrot took her name, sometimes becoming known as Rebecca Cox Jackson Jr. or as Rebecca Perrot Jackson. Eventually, she became known as just Mother Jackson. Sometimes this is described as an effort to honor Jackson and continue her work, but there are also less charitable interpretations, like that it was more about her own self-aggrandizement. There are no known pictures of Rebecca Cox Jackson, but there is one of Rebecca Perrot, which is sometimes labeled as Jackson in error, most likely because of this whole name change. Rebecca Cox Jackson left behind a lot of writing. Most of it remained unpublished for more than a century, though. Rebecca Perrot gave a lot of it to Shaker leaders. Two different Shakers each made a copy of it, sometimes also making edits. These wound up in various libraries and archives, and two books that came out in the early 1980s compared these different versions when they were being prepared. Rebecca Perrot continued to lead the Shaker community in Philadelphia for years after Jackson's death. She and four other members retired to Waterville in 1896, and she lived there until her death in 1901. The Black Shaker community in Philadelphia seems to have continued for at least a few years after that. The last written mention is in a New York Times article from 1909. That article is about Elder Ernest Pick, who had been dismissed from the Shakers and had been trying to document Shaker communities, which by that point were really dwindling. The Times describes him traveling, quote, from Pittsfield to Philadelphia, where there is a colored community of Shakers, small in numbers. As we've alluded to, there are two works about Jackson that include a lot of her writing. Both of these came out in 1981. One is called Gifts of Power, The Writings of Rebecca Jackson, Black Visionary, Shaker Eldress. That's by Jean McMahon Humez. That includes introductory material and analysis on Jackson with her complete writings from 1830 to 1864. The other is Called and Chosen, The Story of Mother Rebecca Jackson and the Philadelphia Shakers by Richard E. Williams. That one has biographical material and analysis that are kind of interspersed with quotes 
some of them very lengthy from Jackson's writings. Sometimes it's like a little bit of analysis and then a very long passage of her journals. Um, The journals are very fascinating to read. A lot of them just in very straightforward and matter-of-fact language just sort of chronicle these visions that she had or dreams that she had or the person that she met with or her own thoughts on theology. And I wish we had ones from those gaps to fill in some more detail about parts of this story. Do you have a little bit of listener mail to fill in details of other lives? I sure do. Uh, This is from Sarah. Sarah writes, Kiora from Aotearoa, New Zealand. As you mentioned in the podcast, one of the issues of the Mercator and many other projections is that it's Eurocentric. One of the results of this is that Aotearoa, New Zealand, and other Pacific nations are, of course, off the edge. This has led to the great map conspiracy where New Zealand is left off maps all over the world, which begs the question, does New Zealand actually exist? There was even a joking, maybe, suggestion that New Zealand diplomats carry New Zealand map stickers to add ourselves back on when we find we've been left off maps. I've linked a video made by Reese Darby of Flight of the Concords fame and Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, which includes lots of Kiwi humor and a bunch of other famous Kiwis. There's a link to this video. Thanks for all the podcasts. They've kept me company over many, many years, sewing, sitting up with babies, traveling for my own work. I've attached photos of my Maoshi Benji and my rescue cat, Ruru, which is the word in Te Reo Maori for our native owl, which he has similar colorings to. So that's from Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sending this. Uh, we sure did not mention how often New Zealand is left off of maps. And what's bizarre is sometimes there's a space right there that, like, New Zealand logically would be end, and it's just not there. (laughs) No, New Zealand. Which is a pity, because so much good stuff comes from New Zealand. Yeah, uh, being from the United States means that we very often see U.S. maps that have this just weird, weird ways of adding in Alaska and Hawaii, since they are not contiguous with the other 48 states. Um, And I remember there being COVID maps early in the pandemic that just didn't have Hawaii on there at all. And people were like, but where's Hawaii, though? Like, (laughs) that also is a state. Uh, And then, of course, other places which are uh, territories are otherwise connected to the U.S., which are also not included on these maps at all. Um, This made me think of this with this email. But then in this video, which I watched, and it is delightful, uh, they keep keep finding all of these world maps, like, out, you know, it just in day-to-day life. And a lot of them, I'm like, but that's the space for New Zealand right there, even to scale with the rest <laughs> of the map. Like, why is it gone? Uh, not actually something to be laughing at necessarily, but um, the video is made with a humorous spin. So thank you so much for sharing that uh, with us, Sarah. We'll put a link to that in our social media when we uh, tweet about this episode. Oh, and also, thank you for these animal pictures. I love them. Um, I did the thing where when I printed out this email to read it, I accidentally printed out the pictures also. And so now I have these giant 8.5 by 11 printouts of pets. (laughs) Uh, If you'd like to write to us, we're History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. I'm going to say I hope I did okay pronouncing the words in Maori. I did try very hard to, to listen and practice before reading this email. 
We are all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you'd like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sierra Leone has some of the world's highest maternal mortality rates. One nurse, Zainab, has not lost a single mother. This Mother's Day, join care in supporting maternal health around the world. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.